Jonah chapter number one. We've covered the first 16 verses. We're at the last verse of Jonah chapter one. And this is arguably one of the most well-known passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. It's a story that Christians love to tell and skeptics love to scorn. This story of a man being swallowed by a whale alive and living in the whale for three days and three nights. Now, I understand in a crowd this size that not everybody here would believe the factual accuracy of this story, and you may be a little bit skeptical of a guy living in a well's belly for three days and three nights. Uh, honestly, that's, this is not the intention of my sermon today, but I'll at least hit it in passing, uh, that some would think, oh, you know, that's cool, that's, that's maybe a myth, though. Well, the Bible doesn't say it's a myth, and Jesus even treats it like it was an accurate story. And I want to give you something to chew on if you struggle to believe this. If you struggle to believe the story, honestly, that's the fruit of kind of a larger issue, it's not the root. So the root is, if you believe in miracles at all, especially if Jesus rose from the dead, that'd be the greatest of miracles. Uh, the root is if you believe that there's a creator God. Really, that's the root of it. Because if you believe that there's a God who created the universe, who spoke everything into existence, who, who made us as creatures, if you believe that, then you can believe Jonah easily. Because biblically, we would say God created the universe. He's creator God. We're creature. Historically, we would say this, we as creatures have been smart enough to create contraptions that we can put a small village of people inside of and float them at the bottom of the ocean for six months at a time. We've done that, like as creatures. We've been able to make submarines and devices to take a small village of people, scores of people, and put them in the ocean underwater for six months at a time. Now, I would contend that if we as the creature can do that, then maybe we could just give God a break and he as creator could put one guy at the bottom of the ocean for three days and three nights. Maybe. So that's all I'm going to say about it. Let's begin with chapter 1, verse number 17. I begin in chapter 117 because honestly... 117 through 210 is all uh, really one passage. Uh, I think that the chapter division uh, was kind of wrong here, that the chapter division should have been after 116. And that's not heresy, by the way. Chapter divisions are man-made, so I'm allowed to have a beef with the people who made the chapter division. So, um, so if I was making the chapter division, I would move it up a verse. And I'll tell you why as we go through the, through the story here. So Jonah 1, verse number 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, and thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I'm cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottom of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever, yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Chapter 2 of Jonah is a unique passage of Scripture. It's unique for several reasons, and we'll address a couple of them this morning. But one of them is that 
this, uh, uh, the bulk of this chapter is a psalm. It's poetic. There you go from the chapter of prose and this story that's unfolding to kind of going right to some poetry and then you enter right back into some prose in chapter number three. And it's, it's a unique passage that's designed to be different. It's designed to grab our attention. And this chapter of the Bible should kind of shake us out of our doldrums and our running and rebellion from God. And we should be able to identify with Jonah and do that. But at the same time, it should also encourage us because Jonah is someone who experiences love and mercy and grace. And he declares his thankfulness when it's all said and done because of it. So what I want to do today is to just comb through this chapter and to pick out some of the major themes. And there are a lot of major themes here. I had to eliminate some of them. I was able, I think, to be able to fit five of them in today. I'd like to give you seven or eight, but I'm going to crank it down to five. And if you listen fast, I'll talk fast, and it'll be a marriage made in heaven. So here is, here, I'll even give them to you up front. Here are the five that we're going to talk about. Uh, reduce the pace, recognize the control, remember the grace, receive the discipline, renounce the sin. So if you didn't catch all that, hang tight. They're coming at you. So reduce the pace. Chapter 1, verse 17 is a unique verse because you get right in the middle of the verse. In the Hebrew, there's this strong pausal accent. Now this is translated in English and it's translated in such a way that they just break up the verse into two separate sentences, which is unique. Most of the time a verse is one sentence or part of a sentence, but to have two and one is unique. And you can kind of see this in verse uh, number 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, period. And there's this pause that's designed to happen there. <clears throat> and God is intentionally hitting the brakes on the story and slowing it down a little bit. And then it says this, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish Three days and three nights. Now, think through this story for just a moment. This story has taken a frantic pace. Chapter 1-1, you find that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, in the verse number 2, hey, get up, go to Nineveh, preach to them. Chapter th- or verse number 3, I mean, three verses into the chapter, Jonah says no, runs from God, goes to Tarshish, books a ship, and is on the ship. I mean, it's three verses, and you have all the story that unfolds. And then he's on the ship, and boom, the storm comes, and mariners are just cranking stuff overboard and throwing it away, and it's coming. And they're waking up Jonah and pray to your God, and they're casting lots. And it's you, what, what are you doing, man? What's going on here? Oh, it's me, throw me overboard. No, so they row real hard. They try to get it to land, and then, and then they can't get it to land, so they take Jonah, and all of a sudden you're, at, you're 16 verses in, and they're, uh, one, uh, two, uh, do we, uh, on three, after three, to throw me in. So, and they throw him in. And this story is just, it moves, and it is going, and it's going. And then you get to verse number 17, and all of a sudden there's this, Jonah hits the water, and God had prepared this great fish, and pause. It starts to slow down purposefully, and you're left with 11 verses now of a man who is entombed inside of the belly of a well, who's left alone with his thoughts and his God. It purposefully, this is designed to, to captivate the imagination. This is designed to grab your attention. This is designed to slow it all down and just make you stop and to make you think. And this, this is really, when it's all said and done, the story comes to a crashing halt that has been moving hectically. It comes to a crashing halt and you're left Jonah alone with his God. And this is designed to stir your curiosity. This is designed to slow you down. This is designed to possibly even teach us a lesson. Because if we're honest, we live at a hectic velocity in our own lives. 
Some of you just experienced this that went to Nicaragua. Nicaragua team, welcome back. Good to have you back this week. I hope that the missions trip was awesome and that you got to see the Lord work for, for seven days while you were over there. But you experienced when you went to Nicaragua that there's a different pace of living there than there is in America. Just the nature of our society and our culture is that we live at, at a frantic pace and the to-do list grows longer and longer, both from work and from the honey-do list. And technology keeps invading our lives so that we have less and less downtime to ourselves. And we used to think that technology, we'd be so efficient that we would all work 20-hour work weeks instead of 40-hour work weeks because we can get just as much done in half the time. But hasn't the opposite come true? We've tacked on 20 hours. Now we're working 60 instead of 40. Now we have to be so efficient and so much more and, and all this to do. And honestly, think about it for a moment. When's the last time you told yourself, I'm bored? When's the last time you said those two words to yourself? Probably like, oh, I was like three, four, five as a kid. We don't say it. Because we're not, because we're constantly going, we're constantly moving. There's always something to do. There's always someone to connect with. There's always a little a red bubble notification on, on my iPhone. If you're like me, sometimes that, that email bubble just continues to grow and it goes from single digits to double digits to triple digits. And I'm like, I don't even want to look at it now. And then it normally doesn't get to, to four digits for me. But there's, it, it invades us, it comes at us. There's always something to do. And the honest truth is this. The fast pace makes our secret rebellion even easier. That pace and that velocity that we move at and the culture keeping us busy and keeping us busy and keeping us frantic means that we have no stillness of the soul. It means that we have very little time in our lives to stop and to reflect, to think what what should I do differently? Where have I gone wrong today? We have very little time for reflection. We have, we have little to no margin in our lives to actually create some space and get alone with God. And what's happening here in this story is that Jonah is running as fast as he can trying to get away from the Lord. And God's going to slow it all down. And he's just going to hit the brakes and say, you know what? Let me quarantine you over here to myself for a few days. And let me have just you and me alone to ourselves so that we can talk to each other, communicate with each other. Uh, Jonah, what I'm going to do is put you in solitude so that we can be alone and we can talk about what's going on here. And this is something that we should learn from Jonah, that we should not force God to put us in a box and to quarantine us alone, but we should work at having space in our life, having enough time that we can get alone with the Lord where we can have some time. Think about it in, in your own mind right now. When is the last time you got alone with God? And you had a conversation with him. I'm not talking about, uh, I'm driving down the road, oh, help me not to hit that deer. And I'm talking about, it doesn't have to be an hour, 10 minutes. When's the last time you had 10 minutes by yourself, still, silent, solitude, alone with God? If the answer is not in the last six or seven days, there's a problem there. You've created a pace. You've created, and it may be your own, maybe you just assume that, thanks to yourself. I got to watch that show. I got to check this. I got to, I got to stay on top of, oh, they just liked my, you know, there's 77 likes on my, just stop it. Just go into social media fast for a while. Turn off the TV. Do some, create some space. 
Reduce the pace of your life and get some margin back and spend some time alone with the Lord because this is what God is doing. And, and we're, good at, we're good at contriving these, these weird excuses to try to convince ourselves that this is okay and that we really don't need this time alone with the Lord or that we just can't do it. You know, there's so much on me at work and I have so much to do that I just, I can't figure it out or, or the honey-do list is so long, there's just too much to do. I, I don't buy the excuse. I don't. You accepted the job, you accepted the promotion, you accepted the responsibility, so get out of it. Have a conversation with your boss. Work less hours. Make a change. Come up with a game plan. If you have too many things to do on your Saturday, sell one of your seven vehicles. Do you need the two cars and the boat and the ATV and the truck because I go mudding once every year? You don't have to wash them all. Sell them. You, honestly, you can control your own schedule. If you don't control it, someone will control it for you. I can guarantee you that. But you have the ability to reduce your pace, to stop. And and Jonah is trying to run from the Lord, and this is moving, moving, moving. But God's going to force his hand. And God's going to get him where he wants him, and that's alone with me in solitude. And God wants you there. Don't make God twist your arm to get there. Get there on your own. You'd much rather maintain your schedule and do that on your own than find yourself laying in a hospital bed for four days. Now, am I trying to dangle a stick over you and say God's going to put you in the hospital if you don't do that? No, not necessarily, but it's possible. So reduce the pace. Work on getting some time alone with God. Work on you and him just having a conversation alone because that's what's happening in this story. Secondly, I would say this, recognize the control. If you understand what's happening in this chapter, one of the major themes that Jonah is laying out for us is that God is in control of all of this. This is at least part of the reason why I think that 117 should really be part of chapter number two. Look at chapter one, verse 17. You see that this section is framed in with God's control and there's sprinklings of it all throughout. So 117, now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. That word prepared is literally a word of assignment. God had done this. Look at chapter 2, verse number 10. The Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon dry land. Now this is meant to frame the section. This is meant to shift our focus to where our primary focus is the control and the sovereignty of God that he is in control of what's happening in Jonah's life. Look at verse number 3. Jonah says this. For thou, talking to God, thou hast cast me into the deep. Wait a second, Jonah. I thought those sailors cast you in the deep. Jonah says, no, no, no. God was in control of that. He's really the one that put me in the water. And then he continues, And the floods come past me about all, whose billows? Thy billows, God. Thy waves passed over me. I recognize that that was, that was God sending that wave crashing down on me. That was God putting me in the ocean. That was God preparing a fish. That was God getting me out of that fish. That God's control is pervasive in this passage of Scripture. And Jonah is saying, look, God is behind this chaos. God is behind this calamity. God is orchestrating all this. And why is this, Jonah? Well, I would argue that the answer is in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. And he heard me. Out of the bell of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. Jonah says this, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. That in his distress, he calls out to God. Certainly a phrase that all of us can relate with. 
and not just all of us, that phrase will connect with any language, any person, any slice of history. What is Jonah saying? I hit rock bottom. I was in despair. I was at my wit's end. I was at the end of my rope. I was pressed into a situation that I couldn't control. And it was there that I called unto the Lord. In my affliction, I called out to God. Hasn't that been you? Maybe not this week, maybe not this month, but can you think of the time in your life where the trial hit, the storm hit, the affliction hit, the, that came down the pipe at you, and you had no alternative but to say, God, help. You were stuck. Your affliction, your trial had put you there. Maybe you got the news that you should have been sitting down when you got that phone call. Maybe you had to make the phone call that you're staring at the dialing pad knowing I have to call my spouse and I have to tell them something that I fear they may already know, but I have to tell them. Maybe you're sitting in the ICU waiting room. Maybe you're staring at a pregnancy test. Maybe you're in the back of a police car. I don't know what it was in your life that you received that affliction. You got boxed into that scenario, but it forced you to call out to God and say, God, I need you. Why is God controlling this? Why is God doing this? Why is this happening? This is happening so that in his distress, Jonah would cry out to the Lord. This is the same thing that will happen to you when you run from God. And I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how careful you are. I don't care how conniving you are. I don't care how slick you are. Eventually, if you're running from God and you're his child, he loves you enough to discipline you enough thoroughly that you will reach a point of affliction where you will be boxed in and you will have no choice but to call out to the Lord. And you can be careful, you can be smart, you can be deceptive, and no one can know right now, but you will reach the point where you're found out, where you're humbled, where you're discovered, where you're caught. And it's in that moment that you, despite trying to adjust your theology, despite trying to dumb down your conscience, despite trying to navigate around it and convince yourself that nothing was going to happen, despite your high level of resistance, it'll break you. It'll force you to say, God, I need you. Help me. Help my child. Help my spouse. And that's probably the scariest portion there. It's not always you that needs the help. Sometimes you're boxed in. It's someone else who receives the, the brunt of it, so to speak. But God, in his control, is boxing Jonah in so that in his affliction, he cries out to the Lord. And he says, he ends his psalm in verse number 9, and he ends with this statement that's meant to just accentuate what he's saying here, that God is in control of this. And he ends with five words. And he says these five words, salvation, verse number nine, is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. That I understand my saving, this scenario, this well, all of this that's happened. This is because of God, that he's done this, that he's in control. This is something that we, this week, should even celebrate to a high degree as we're trying to evangelize, as we're trying to invite unreached people to come to church, as we're trying to share the gospel. We should understand those five words. And I would dare say that we do understand those five words. Just the nature of our prayers teach us that we understand them. When you pray for that lost relative, when you pray for that person to know the Lord, what do you pray? You pray, God, change their heart. God, convict them. God, work on them. What are you saying? You're saying salvation is of the Lord. 
You're saying, I recognize, God, that you have control in this scenario and that, and that you can orchestrate things and you can do things and you can make this happen, that, Lord, I understand that salvation is, is of you. And this is important because it's teaching us about God himself. And when you recognize the control and the power of God, it will leave you with intense adoration. It will leave you with this reverence and awe as you begin to fully understand that God is in control. It makes inaction actually impossible when you understand who God is and how in control he is. And Jonah, through this passage, one of the major themes is, look, God is in control. I, I recognize this. I, I give it over to him. I say openly, I admit, I was trying to trump God. I was trying to do my own thing. I was trying to run. I was trying to be in control. But God was in control. Thirdly, I'd say this, remember the grace. This is ultra encouraging for us. Verse number two and verse number one. Jonah prayed unto the Lord out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. Then four words, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For the most desperate circumstances that God was in control, but many of them were of Jonah's own making. God heard Jonah. Now what is this? This is generous grace. This is God finding Jonah in his mess that he's created for himself. This is God finding Jonah literally at rock bottom. This is God finding Jonah with no other resource. He's run and he's run and he's run. He's been so maniacal that he will commit suicide. He'll, he'll be thrown over into the water and he'll, he'll play the death card in order for God not to get his way. And this man reaching his end and reaching the bottom says, I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. He heard my voice. That I was as low as I could possibly go. And it was even there when I cried out that God still heard me. God was still gracious. God still wanted to win me back. God still wanted to bring me back. That I was able to surrender. And God said, hey, Jonah, let's put all this behind us. Let's move forward in obedience. That there was mercy. There was grace there. I was in a pickle. I was in a jam. But God was there to help me. This is what David says in, in Psalm 120. In my distress, I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. Now let that truth sink in. God hears and answers prayer. Even when you are at the lowest of lows. And that's where Jonah is. We learn through this passage of Scripture all the way through verse number 7. I'm going to read through it here with you that, that you can't sink below his mercy and his grace. Look at verse number 3. For thou hast cast me into the deep. God, I recognize I hit the water because of you. I'm in the midst of the seas, and the floods come past me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. I personally think that over these next few verses, Jonah is going to describe kind of the scenario that unfolded when this fish swallowed him. You know, we're, we're left to think, did, did Jonah hit the water and, you know, the fish got him right away? Did, what, was he trying to tread water and the boat got out of sight and then the well come? Did the mariners see it? What happened here? I think Jonah's going to describe this in very poetic language. What happened here? That I'm in the midst of the sea, the, the billows and the waves passed over me. So I'm trying, but they're crashing down on top of me. Then I said, I'm cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. That jo what Jonah is trying to do is he's trying to turn back to the Lord to a degree. Solomon 
when he dedicated the temple, instructed those, the, the Jewish people that when they went from the Lord, that they should pray toward Jerusalem, toward the holy temple. This is why Daniel, when he's an outcast in Babylon, he opens his windows and he prays toward Jerusalem because that was the biblical instruction. And Solomon, despite being in the, wa- or uh, Jonah, despite being in the washing machine and just kind of getting tossed over and over and the waves coming down, at best I know how, God, I'm turning toward your holy temple. Verse number five, the waters come past me about even to the soul. The depth closed round about me. The weeds were wrapped about my head. So I'm no longer fighting these waves crashing on me. I'm, I'm under. The seaweed is swirling around. I can't get it off. I'm under the water. I can't breathe. It's, it's compassing me even to my soul. All around, I'm, I'm sinking. Verse number six, I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet, thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. This is Jonah saying, I am about to die. I'm about to black out all over. I'm spacing in and out. At that point, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. The picture you get here is a man who hits the water and is fighting and fighting and then is, is under the water and is, he's done for. It's over and it's there. It's his last moments that he tries his best to call out to God and God saves him via a fish he had prepared. And it's there at the bottom. The lowest of lows, you, you could not sink any deeper. The Jonah recognizes my waywardness, my rebellion, he turns to God and God comes and through his grace, he raises him up. And, and look what, I mean, there's so much here, but even, even verse number seven, I mean, Jonah, he's straining human language to the breaking point as he tries to accurately describe what's happening in this scenario. My soul fainted within me, that literally my, my soul is curling in on itself, that I am, I'm done And that's when my prayer came in under thee. That's when you heard me, God. That's when you recognized my cry that as humbled as I could be, I turn to you. This teaches us that this fish for Jonah, although it is a means of of discipline, primarily this fish for Jonah is a means of grace and mercy. It's God rescuing him. It's Jonah calling out and recognizing that God hears me. This is not liquid hatred for Jonah. This is God saving him. This is God being generous to him. So remember the grace. It's generous. But I would say this, and don't miss this. Receive the discipline. It's thorough. God is generous to his grace in Jonah, and he is going to save him. He's going to bring him back. But he's thorough in his discipline. If Jonah is swallowed in the belly of the well, and it's there then that he begins to come to his senses and he cries out and says, Lord, I'm sorry, you know, I I repent, I turn, which he does. I'm, I'm thankful for what you've done. Why does God, everything about this, why does God leave him in the belly of the fish three days and three nights? The picture you get from the, from the book is not that Jonah is holding out in his stubbornness and it takes him three days to submit. The picture you get is that he's done for, he calls out, then he's saved by the fish, and then he's going to spend three days and three nights in the fish. Why? Is it just to show us a picture of Jesus and his resurrection in the future? Uh, Maybe, but not primarily. 
primarily, I believe that this is here to show us that God wanted Jonah alone with himself, and there was a time of discipline that God was going to be thorough in. And a good father is thorough in his discipline. I would illustrate it this way. I have four brothers, two older, two younger. I'm right in the middle. And my parents believed in discipline, and when I say discipline, I mean they beat us. So that, uh, not really, that's, that's an overstatement. But corporal discipline was a part of our home life, which, by the way, I'm thankful for. Some of you in the room received spankings as a child or maybe even as an 18-year-old. I don't know. But uh, <clears throat> those work until kids are about, you know, six or seven, and it starts to wane off and lose its effectiveness. But I was spanked. I'm grateful for it. Some of you were spanked. You're grateful for it. Some of you weren't spanked, and you needed to be. So that's... That was, my, that was my home life. So my parents didn't really beat us, okay? My dad never hit me with the belt buckle. I never bled. There was everything crazy. But there was discipline there. Now, my oldest brother and my youngest brother are as strong-willed as they come, and spanking time would come when they were in trouble, and they were going to clench the fist, clench the jaw, fight, kick, do everything they could not to cry, and try to hold out as long as possible. Just a, a strong will. Uh, I was the opposite. I can be stubborn in many ways, but when it came to discipline or knowing that I disappointed my dad or my mom, when I knew that I was wrong and I was stuck and I was caught, I was, I was done for. I, I didn't need, honestly, I didn't need the spanking. I would cry, and they weren't fake tears. It wasn't like I'm trying to get out of a spanking, I'm trying to be manipulative. Like my heart would break, I would cry. It was just the fact that I knew that I was wrong, that I was caught, that I was done, that I disappointed someone. You know, that, that was me. My dad... He dubbed me as tender-hearted. I was always the tender-hearted of the five boys, which as a kid, you don't really want, you know, no, I want to be you know, Rambo. I don't want to be tender-hearted. But that was me. That's what he called me, tender-hearted. Now, there were many times, my brothers contend that I got softer spankings because of that. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know this. There were many times where I repented, where I said, I'm wrong. I laid down. I surrendered. Tears over. Done. I'm sorry. Before the spanking. And you know what my dad did? He still spanked me. You say, he's evil. He's me. No, he's not. He is a good, loving parent. Wanted to do what I hope to do with my own children, to associate wrong choices and rebellion with a little bit of pain. In a measured way, in a careful way. But he wanted to do that to teach me a lesson. After I had repented... After I had laid down and surrendered, after I had waved the white flag, I still got the spanking. That's what's happening with Jonah. Jonah has surrendered. Jonah has waved the white flag. Jonah has said, Lord, I turn back to you. I'm done running. I give up. I give in. Bring me back. God says, okay. He hears his prayer. He saves him, but he still has three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. God is going to be thorough in his discipline. And know this. Know that no matter what you've done or how far you've run or how far you've sunk, that you can turn back to the Lord. He will hear your cry. He will give you mercy. He will give you grace. He will set you back on the track of obedience. But that does not mean that he waves the magic wand and everything is okay now. That doesn't mean that the bad business deal you did that lacked in integrity now is just going to be magically made okay and you're going to have more money in your bank account. It doesn't mean that the consequences of your sin are no longer in effect and that your, that your spouse is now just going to trust you magically or that your, that your children are going to put their confidence in you magically. No, there's consequences to sin. There's grace and there's mercy, but there is, there's a discipline process and there's things that happen after you sin that are still there, that are still valid. 
Even in verse number 10, the Bible says that the Lord spake unto the fish and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. I think, like, God, why don't you just teleport him or something? Just, you know, just put him in Nineveh. But no, the fish, like, Jonah is done with his rebellion and he comes out smelling like fish vomit. I don't know what that smells like. I've never smelt that. I just know fish stink in general. So fish vomit can't be good, okay? Sorry to be graphic, but it's what it says. In your own life, understand that there may be some discipline you have to receive even after you wave the white flag. You may smell like fish vomit for a little while. You may have some restoration that needs to happen. You may have some trust that you have to build up. You may have some discipline that comes from the Lord because he loves you. Some people want to, say, want to think of God as all grace. God's not all grace. God is love, and in his love, there's grace and discipline mixed together, as any good loving father will have. And God is going to discipline Jonah. He's going to put him in solitary confinement. I would say the worst of the worst. We still use this as a method of discipline in our prison system, don't we? What's the worst thing that can happen to you? You'd be put in solitary? God's going to do this for three days with Jonah. He's going to quarantine him away. And say, look, son, there's some things that we have to discuss, and you're going to go through some discipline, and God is thorough in that discipline. The bottom line for you is don't make God put you through all that. Just surrender now. I bet Jonah wished, I can't speak for Jonah, but I would think, common sense would tell me, he wishes that he would have just fessed up when they cast lots and said, okay, put it back to Nineveh. But he didn't. And he made, he forced God's hand. So that's you, and you're running. Wave the white flag, yes. But know that there may be some discipline that comes. Lastly, renounce the sin. Verse number 8 and 9 of chapter number 2, you finally find Jonah's heart of repentance here. Verse number 8. He's going to contrast people against himself at this point in time. And he says, verse number 8, a, a phrase in the, in the Hebrew is very difficult to understand, honestly. And he says this, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. What does that mean? People that observe, give heed to, hold on to, uh, let, let it have their way, the, the deceptive, the lying vanities. Look, if you let that take hold, then you are forsaking, you're giving up, you're walking away from your own mercy. What is Jonah saying here? Really, if I could put it in a terse way, I would say this, buy the lie and forfeit the good. What Jonah is saying is when you buy the lie and you run from God and you forsake him and you, go, you, you hold to those lying vanities and you're forsaking the good, you're forsaking your own mercy. He says, no, but that's not me now. That was, but not me. Verse number nine. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah comes and he says, look, I've reached a point where, God, I give in. God, I'm thankful for your control. I will give you what I owe you. God, I'm your prophet. I'm your man. You told me to go. God, I surrender. I wave the white flag. I give in. I will do what you said. I will renounce my sin. I'll turn back to you. I, I will go to Nineveh, God. Now, Jonah is still shedding his skin, so to speak, and we'll find that he's still a mess in chapter 3 and chapter 4 in many degrees, but he is at least willing to be obedient to what God tells him to do. He doesn't have the best attitude about it, but he's at least willing to do it. And he reaches a point where he renounces his sin, and in your own life, your restoration process that needs to take place begins with you declaring your rebellion and saying, I recognize my sin, and I'm done with it. 
And it's sin. It's not a mistake. It's not a whoopsie. It's not a, uh, I meant, it's, I sinned. I was wrong. God, I disobeyed. God, I did what you told me not to do. You told me not to do that. And I said, that's exactly what I want to do. That I see that now. And Lord, I'm coming to you and I surrender and I'm telling you I give in. You win. I'm done fighting this. In our own lives, it would be healthy for us just to admit our need for God. And to say, I'm done. I put it down. And don't fool yourself. Well, 90% of my life is great. I mean, you should see what I do for my neighbor. You should see, I mean, you gave us those invite cards. I, I shared the love of Jesus like 18 million times last week. I mean, I was doing random acts of kindness all over the place. But there's this one thing that I'm holding on to that, that God's telling me to let go of, but I won't let go of it. But there's this one thing that he's telling me to pick up, but I'm just hesitant and I'm scared. And I don't know what's going to happen if I do that. So I don't, I don't want to do that. There's, there's this one skeleton in my closet, or maybe it's a skeleton in the closet behind the closet, but there's something in your life oh, but there's this good, but there's this little bit of bad. God's going to hound you. And in his love, he's not going to let you go until, until you give up. And don't fool yourself. Don't fake yourself. Don't tell yourself that, well, I can, I can just do all this and, and I can just leave this as is. No, 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 no. Renounce the sin. Tell him, as Jonah did, don't make him box you in. Don't make him paint you into a corner. Don't make him put you in isolation. Renounce it, recognize it, wave the white flag and say, God, I'm done. I surrender. I walk away from this. And Jonah even says, I offer the, the sacrifice of thanksgiving with a voice of thanksgiving. God, he even reaches a point because this is not depressing. You being wrong in your sin and walking away from it is not depressing. That's, a, that's beautiful because when you walk away from it and you turn to God, something will happen in your life that is amazing. And you will begin to be thankful and see God's hand and recognize his control and surrender to that. We've talked much about next Sunday, and I'm hoping that you will all invite and that you will all get people to come here and that you'll share the gospel and that you'll bring them here and they're here the gospel. I hope that it will be a beautiful day in our church family. But honestly, what some of you need is not me to give you a pep talk and encourage you to go invite some people. What some of you need is what David needed. Read Psalm 51, not now, but later. There's several passages on your bulletin and connection card that are prayers of repentance. You find Psalm 51, David repents. And he turns to God. He says, God, I'm done. And then after he's been thoroughly repentant, he says, now... I will teach transgressors their ways so that they may be converted unto thee. What David said was, when my heart was wrong, I kind of wanted to, I had this desire to, but I, I couldn't sing. I couldn't teach people you. I couldn't give the gospel, so to speak. Because of the sin of my life. What some of you need is not a pet talk to go out there, rah, 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 invite your neighbor. What some of you need is to come clean and say, God, I'm wrong. God, I surrender. I renounce my sin. And then God will begin to do a work in your heart. And then the things that you should be doing, the things that you should be proactive in doing, that you, you'll begin to want to pick them up. You'll begin to want to have the desire. Why? Because that sin is no longer holding you in its grip. And today the primary force of this message is that you would see a man who is, who is just boxed in as much as God possibly could ever box somebody in and reaches a breaking point of affliction where he finally says, God, I'm an idiot. I call out. I surrender. I'm done. 
Don't make him put you there. Do it on your own. Wave the white flag and tell God, God, I'm done running. This morning, in just a couple minutes, we're, we're going to have an invitation as we always do. And I'm going to give you an, an opportunity this morning not just to pray and to surrender, but I'm going to invite you in a, in a few minutes to, to kind of step out of your seat and walk down an aisle and maybe even pray at the front or, or in the aisle here this morning if you're a runner. And I do that for a reason. I do that because some of you need to have the courage enough to walk 10 feet. Some of you, your spouse needs to see that you finally admitted and that you're coming. Some of you, your children need to see that, you've, that you're finally done and you're laying it down. Some of you teenagers, your parents need to see that you're done and that your stubbornness and that your rebellion is over. And it may behoove you, it may behoove us to, to have something tangible that we do to say, you know what, I'm done. Maybe it happened to you two weeks ago when we started the Jonah series. Maybe it happened last week. I, I don't know, but I want to give you some space and I want to give you some time this morning just to openly and honestly say, and I know it may be inconvenient, that may be a little difficult or tough or, oh, there's three people and I'm going to have to squeeze past them. I get it. I get it. I get that your pride doesn't want you to do it. I get it completely. I'm going to do it anyway. Because there inevitably are a handful in this room, you need to do those three words. Renounce the sin. And say, you know what? I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And God's been trying. He's been trying to squeeze you. He's been trying to get you. Your conscience has been talking to you. He's been after you. And he's not trying to pay you back. He's not trying to get his pound of flesh. He's trying to win you back. He wants to bring you back. So remember his grace. Know that you may have to receive some discipline, but come and say, God, I surrender. It's over. I give in.